Welcome to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hanson, hosted by attorneys Sean Garner and Adam Hanson. Welcome to another edition of Life, Death, and the Law. I'm Sean Garner, attorney with Deason, Garner, and Hanson, and I'm in studio here with Adam Hanson, my partner-in-law, and also Cody Beeson, who is helping us uh, with the soundboard. Good morning, gentlemen. Hey, good morning. So the big topic throughout the next year is going to be the presidential election that's coming up in 2024, and the presidential candidates that we've got running. We have a list of candidates that many of them are very qualified. I think any one of them would actually do a good job. Um, But there are some that are more electable, I would say, than others. And, of course, you have Donald Trump that is the front runner. He's leading the polls by double digits. And it doesn't seem like anybody's even getting within um, spitting distance of him. But there are some people that are very good at their messaging and, and seem to be climbing in the polls, albeit they're still single digits as far as their ratings go or their polling numbers but their message seems to really resonate with the people, or at least me. One of them is Vivek Ramaswamy, and we've talked about him in previous shows. I think, overall, he is the most electable candidate. And there's a, there's a variety of reasons for that, but I want to get your opinion. You know, Look at the other um, candidates that we have. We've got Mike Pence. We've got Tim Scott. We've got... Uh, DeSantis? Ron DeSantis, he he was my favorite, honestly, and and quite honestly, I still think that he is, he would be a fantastic president if he could get elected. But my opinion is that Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump are both not our best chances for a Republican win for the White House. What what's what's your take on that, Adam? I'd like to see it uh, flipped around. I, my biggest concern about Trump is that he well. His age. I mean, he, he doesn't That's show your, it, but he's just as old. Your concern is his age, huh? Yeah, because he doesn't show it. I mean, at least not publicly. But he is very similar to Joe Biden in age, and, and Joe is showing <clears throat> incredible decline. And, and, you know, I don't know if Trump has it physically in him. He runs on full power all the time, and that's going to catch up with you eventually. So my biggest concern is age for him. And the electability. I mean, I think he could get 50% of America. But I like I like DeSantis giving a little bit more comfort to that ticket. I wish it could be... I like DeSantis for his youth. And um, I like Trump for getting half the nation, you know. I think those two together would be a great one-two knockout. But I don't think... I would rather see DeSantis as running for president and Trump as VP. But... There's no way, in my opinion, Trump is ever going to yeah. step down to lesser than what he already was before. No, I mean, they're both alpha males. Exactly. But I think that would be the winning ticket there. Uh, DeSantis as president and, and VP would be Donald Trump, just as more of like an advisor. And um, getting the other—I mean, I think the nation would be on board with that. Here's my issue with Donald Trump, is that there are so many people, I would say at least 50%, that will never vote for Donald Trump. And his talking points, they're entertaining, but they're also very divisive. And we want, we need unity back in our country. 
when we walk around and we talk to individuals in the grocery store or on the streets, there is so much more that we have in common than we do difference. But we focus on the differences. And I think that's what Trump does is he pushes those buttons and he finds those, those hot topics that really resonate with Republicans, but they really stick in the craw of the Democrats and or even independents. And so I, I just don't think he is electable on a national scale. I think that someone like Vivek Ramaswamy, who they can't accuse of being a Christian nationalist, you know, and looking for some type of fascist regime based on Christian ideology, because he's not Christian. He's Hindu. But he does focus on Judeo-Christian values, and he acknowledges that those are the values that have made this country great, and he actually embraces them and implements them in his own life. You can be Hindu, Buddhist, Muslim, whatever you are, but the, when we talk about Judeo-Christian values, what we're talking about is the nuclear family. We're talking about the belief in God and that he is our creator and that there are inalienable rights and that there are truths that are not subjective, that are objective truths that we need to acknowledge. And by acknowledging those truths, that we can further our progression and in, in our whole quality of life here on earth. So Vivek not only understands that and preaches that message, but he does it from somebody that is not your traditional white male, so it's harder for them to attack him about being racist or xenophobic or or those other quick talking points that they throw out there for a response to an argument that they don't really have a true... Well, a way to silence. Yeah. You know, you throw that label on there and you can silence somebody. Absolutely. And and, and what I love about Vivek is that he has no history in politics. I don't want any more politics. And I think that that resonates with a lot of Americans. We don't, we're sick of politicians. We're sick of what's going on in Washington. Even Republican politicians today, we talked about Mitch McConnell um, before we turned the mic on hot. I don't know, maybe we're being recorded. But uh, Mitch McConnell is starting to show some decline. Yeah. To me, he's been showing decline for the past six years. He's needed, we needed some newer, fresh blood in there, but he keeps getting elected from, you know, he's a senator from Kentucky. And why does he continue to get elected when he's, he, he should be enjoying his retirement and his golden years and allowing somebody that's got a little bit more vigor and energy to get in there with some fresh ideas. Diane Feinstein is another one of those that literally it's a weekend at Bernie's every time they show up to Congress. And it's, it's getting more of pathetic than just a joke because it, it seems to define more and more members of government, not to mention the White House at the least. So what is it that keeps... Mitch McConnell, Joe Biden, Dianne Feinstein, all these individuals who, they're they're way past their prime, and there are other individuals that are eager to serve their country from getting in and replacing them. What is it? It's it's money. It's, It's lobbyist money. It's the political system that we have set up. Yeah. They know that the people at the top of these unions, of these super PACs, of all of these... firms, all that, yeah. Okay. So, So it's just... The person that's 
stayed too long, overstayed their welcome, but nonetheless still pulls the strings. And so we can't get better ideas in here. And that that brings the issue up of term limits, which is another thing that Vivek states very clearly. clearly. He's one of the only candidates that I've heard be so outspoken about very tough issues that are that there's tough answers for them. Like, what are you going to do with Ukraine? What are you going to do? What do you think about the border? Exactly what would you do? What about term limits? What about the voting age? What about the rights to vote? All of those issues, I think, are right up at the top of the list of priorities that we need to be considering for a candidate. And he'll, he'll speak to each one of those. For example, Ukraine. He's asked, what should we do for Ukraine? Should we continue to pour billions of dollars into this country and allow it to defend its democratic self-governance? And he says, you know what? I'm with Ukraine. I agree that it should maintain its autonomy and it should be allowed to do so. However, I would I'm looking to be the president of the United States, not the president of Ukraine. I wish all the best of luck to Ukraine. But we need to secure our own border before we start securing borders across the sea, across the Atlantic in Europe. So let's concentrate our forces here on securing the southern border and making sure that fentanyl and human trafficking and and, and just complete lawlessness isn't taking place there before we concentrate so much power over in Ukraine. And so then, of course, the response is, so you're just going to let Russia take over Ukraine? He says, listen, Russia has an agenda. Putin is a rational actor. Now, he doesn't think along the same lines as we do. He doesn't agree that right and wrong is is in the same terms as we do, but we have a lot at stake here. We have the issue of pushing Russia, which we have done, further into the arms of China, and now confronting two nuclear powers whenever we want to negotiate anything with world economics. And we see now with BRICS that's going on, where they're going away from the dollar as um, the monetary standard. And that's weakening the U.S. economy and the presence and influence that the U.S. has around the world. So why would we do that? Russia is not our enemy. They're ideologically different as far as how they run their government, but they're not our enemy. So why would we push them into China's arms where now whatever either one of them does, we have no leverage to oppose it either economically or by sanctions or otherwise. So what we should do is make nice with Russia. Say, we're lifting the, the sanctions on Russia. Zelensky, Putin, you need to come to a peace because we're pulling back our assistance. We're no longer going to do this proxy war or whatever you want to call it. And uh, whether that is um, Russia now assumes um, the Donbass region as far as its territory and Crimea, at least the killing stops and there is some form of peace and the escalation towards a new or a third world war starts to flatten out and, and return back to something that is normalized so we don't have to wake up every morning reading about the newest threat or potential of Putin using his hypersonic missiles or nuclear arsenal. And and that, I think, is absolutely essential. You can't win every battle, but right now, if you had a pick between 
allowing Russia to take over a portion of this territory. And I'm saying allowing them in the sense that it's not really our choice to decide whether or not they get to or not. It's, it's Russia and Ukraine's decision. Who are we to govern the rest of the world? And that, that's what everybody else has been saying during every war that we've been fighting in the past 20 years. But now they don't want us to allow Russia to encroach on any of the territory of Ukraine. But you know what? That, that is a European issue. I believe that us getting involved in it not only um, doesn't deter from additional war or additional aggression by Russian Russians, it actually escalates the potential of additional aggression by Russia because it, it uh, puts them into a partnership with China that makes us the, the, the losing one of the three. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I think um, <clears throat> we've got to go a break, but uh, I think you're right, Sean. I think you have, there's two different mentalities when it comes to foreign affairs. It's one of globalism, meaning I'm going to get involved with other proxy wars. And the mantra is so that it doesn't come home and come to our, our home front. And then there's the other America first type mentality, which I think the Trump administration really tried to push, which was we're going to focus on securing our own border and, and building us up. We're not going to police the world. We're going to show the world democracy and how that can run here on a local level and build up our fortresses uh, here at home. We've got to go to break. Um, when we come back, we're going to talk about something that's in the news that is within our wheelhouse. Sean and I, we deal with this every day. And that was a recent uh, IRS tax ruling. We've been getting calls from all sorts of clients that uh, are really worried about this. So we're going to talk about that as we come back from the break. Coming up, more thought-provoking conversations on life, death, and the law right after this. Hey, you, my Dave Ramsey here. If you listen to our show or know anything about us, then you know I only recommend products and services I trust and I believe in. That's why when it comes to protecting your assets and planning for your loved one's future, you've got to call my friends Sean Garner and Adam Hansen at the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen. I encourage you to take the first step and attend a free, no-pressure seminar and learn all of your options. The firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen has been educating the Yuma community for over 40 years, and this is the only area of law that they practice. Sean and Adam believe in giving free education to help people make smart decisions about their assets and help them leave a legacy for their family that they can be proud of. Schedule a free personal consultation today. Call 783-4575 or visit YumaEstatePlanning.com. You're listening to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by Deason, Garner, and Hansen, the law firm that has been voted Yuma's best six years in a row. Welcome back to Life, Death, and the Law. I'm attorney Adam Hansen. I'm with uh, Sean Garner, my partner in crime at the law firm. We've got Cody with us pushing buttons. Um, before the break, we talked about when we were going to come back, addressing an issue that, that's all over the news right now, especially in our wheelhouse, where we deal with trusts and estates on a daily basis. We help families legally plan for um, the inevitable death. I hate to tell you that. And uh, one of those ways is using a living trust. And so what happened back in, I want to say, April was there was a revenue ruling through the IRS that sent shockwaves seemingly throughout our world of trust planning. 
And so this is an article that I read recently. It's entitled, IRS Quietly Changed the Rules on Your Children's Inheritance. This is on uh, Yahoo Finance. And we've been getting calls to our office from a lot of our clients saying, hey, what's going on? I'm gonna, my, my kids don't get a step up in basis. So when, when we talk about this, it's going to sound technical. We're going to do our best to not have it sound like that. And we're going to talk about why it's really not that important to you um, and nothing to be worried about. Unless you're uber rich, then maybe maybe there's something to worry about. But I mean, you have to be really rich uh, at this point in time for this to actually affect you. So the article goes on to say, properties such as your home held in an irrevocable trust, that's the key word here, irrevocable trust, that is not included in the taxable estate at death, will no longer receive a step up in basis. Here's why the wording of, of that is all key. In March, the IRS issued Revenue Ruling 2023-2, which had a substantial impact on estate planning, particularly where an irrevocable trust is, is involved. The last decade or so, more families have begun utilizing irrevocable trusts to protect their assets from spend down in order to qualify for government benefits such as Medicaid and VA uh, aid and attendance. So, Sean, as I read this, what's the first thought that you have? Yeah, that... When you bring up Medicaid, the initial thought is, okay, we've got to make sure the house is saved. Well, here's the issue. The house is not a countable asset in determining qualification for Medicaid benefits. So when people put their house into a Medicaid trust, what they're doing is they're making a gift is the value of the house. So let's say that the value of the house is $300,000. They're making a gift into that irrevocable trust that now they no longer control their home. And the gift is going to subject them to a penalty if they do need to apply for Medicaid within the next five years or some well-meaning social worker applies for them within the next five years. If you apply for Medicaid within five years of making the gift, then that gift is counted as cash in your possession, and you can't receive Medicaid benefits until you meet all the other requirements for qualifying for Medicaid, and the time period for which you could have paid for the services yourself. So let's say that if the gift was $300,000, because that's the value of your house, and $7,000 is the amount that the state determines is what is reasonable to pay for your cost of care, then they divide $300,000, the gift, by $7,000 a month to determine the period of time that you're not going to get benefits despite the fact that you've qualified. So let me repeat that. You've already qualified for benefits, but you gave away your house. It's $300,000. They count that as cash that you should have access to. And so they're not going to give you benefits despite the fact you've met all the requirements, which is difficult to do. The time doesn't start ticking until you actually do the application, meet all the requirements, and then start the penalty period, which if you divide 300,000 by 7,000 is 42 months. So it's three and a half years that you're not going to get benefits. Most people, when they qualify for Medicaid, do not live longer than two years. So that's going to, that penalty period is going to be longer than the period that you are expected to live for. So doing that is a very risky plan. Now, why is it all over the internet? It's because a lot of 
people out there, attorneys included, like to sell services by fear-mongering, and these trusts are expensive. And, and the idea sounds great because they say, we're going to protect your home. And what could be more appealing than protecting your home? Well, something is the truth. And that's what's more appealing. Knowing reality and what you're actually going to qualify for. Your home is not a countable asset. You can qualify for Medicaid benefits and keep your home. In Arizona, your home can be worth 575000 according to the assessor's records and still qualify without it being counted as an asset. So there's not a reason to transfer your home into this Medicaid trust. And the potential of you being able to foresee five years in advance of transferring it before you need to apply for Medicaid, or you go into the hospital and some social worker asks, do you want to apply for benefits that could assist you in paying for your bills? And you say yes, and they submit that application, that's going to go that's going to trigger the look back of that five-year period. And so even if your planner, your uh, Medicaid planner on the attorney end knows don't apply for Medicaid within this five-year period, a social worker can apply for you very easily and not know that you've got this comprehensive plan in the background and then the whole thing is going to break apart. Let's talk about a couple terms that are really important here to understand because like I said, we've got a lot of clients, the phones are ringing off the hook. I thought we did this planning to avoid all this. And what is this Mm -hmm. first and foremost? So I'm going to talk about the basic, in very basic terms, what happens when you use a living trust, a revocable trust during your lifetime, and then what happens when you die. And so there is a thing called a basis, okay? That's a term that the IRS uses when you buy products or you buy things. For example, if I bought a, a house this year, for $100,000, the IRS says that's Adam's basis in that house. What that means is that when I go to sell that house in a few years, maybe I sell it for $200,000 in five years down the road. The IRS says, well, Adam, you bought it for $100,000. You sold it for $200,000. So that means you made a gain that we want, we want you to report to us of $100,000 of equity. And so they're going to say, we want to tax that. We want a piece of that gain that you, that you just realized. That's in very basic terms. There's other things going on with real estate. There's exemptions to that and things like that. But in very basic terms, that's what it means. Basis is the amount that you bought something for, the, co- the, the value of that particular thing. It could be real estate. It could be personal property. It could be a vehicle. Whatever it is, when you acquire it, there's a value that, that is assigned to that for IRS tax purposes, and we call that basis. So what happens is, is when you take your stuff, and you transfer it out of your personal name into the name of your revocable, revocable trust. That's a, what we call a pass-through entity. So now I have the Hanson Trust, let's say, and I take my, this house that I bought for $100,000, and I transfer it to my Hanson Trust. The Hanson Trust now owns my house, and then I go to, I actually, I actually die in five years. Instead of, instead of selling it in five years, I die. What happens with that particular house is value, that basis, is it gets a step up, is what we call that in the IRS tax terms. Because I died and it's in my trust, the value of that house gets stepped up to the value that it is 
the fair market value that it is at the time of my death. So let's say in five years, it's $200,000 when I die. I bought it for $100,000, but now it's $200,000 when I die. It acquired value. And so now when my kids go to sell that house, either that year or three years down the road, and it, they sell it for $205,000, they most likely will have to only realize a gain of about $5,000. And most likely there won't be much of any capital gains tax on that because of the step up in basis. So what is this ruling doing? This ruling only applies to irrevocable trusts. Let me say that again. This revenue ruling only applies to irrevocable trusts. I would argue, and Sean, you can correct me on this, I would, I would say that we, 99% of the trusts that we create for families here in Yuma and abroad are revocable trusts, not irrevocable trusts. An irrevocable trust is a very uh, high-level type of legal plan that you really aren't going to use unless you're, I, and these are generalities that I'm speaking of, the common person is not going to put in place an irrevocable trust unless you have close to the estate tax uh, exemption limit, which is right now $12.92 million for an individual. If you're married, you double that, so you get $25.84 million of an exemption. What that means is that if you have more than that amount of stuff when you die, it's going to be taxed if it's above those levels. I would. Most people do not have anywhere close to that. It applies to maybe 0.01 of Americans, and there is a reason for that. That was all done during the Trump administration. These levels got boosted, doubled uh, to that level, and and so most Americans are not subject to an estate tax when they pass away because the the exemption level is so high. And that was done. It was argued that it was done for the American farmer. Sean, uh, would you agree with that? The American farming families. What would tend to happen, and, it, and we see this all the time in Yuma, is that you would have generations of farming families that acquired land at so cheap of an amount back in the 30s or in the 20s when these land deals were being done, and then the, that land passes from generation to generation when mom and dad, or when grandpa and grandma die, and then mom and dad die, and now the kids are left with this ag land that is worth multi-million dollars worth of, of value, and when that would happen they would tend to be over the exemption level, which during the Obama administration was about $5 million per person um, around there, you know, five, $6 million per person. And, and so what was happening was when grandpa and grandma, mom and dad were dying and this farmland was transferring to the kids, the IRS wanted their money immediately. The taxable estate, they wanted that IRS tax bill immediately. Oftentimes the ag land didn't have cash available to pay millions of dollars of taxes just because mom and dad died or grandpa and grandma died. And so what in, tended to happen was these ag families that had these this land holding for years and years and years would have to parcel off and sell land to pay the tax bill that the IRS came looking for and knocking on their door for. So the Trump administration boosted that, doubled the tax exemption to save the American farmer, and that's how they branded it, whether or not that was... And, this, and small business owner. And small because business owners, yeah. You, you can have a small business, and you can put a lot of time and effort into building that small business, and a lot of it is capital. And um, that capital is used to generate revenue, but it takes 
generations to develop all that capital. And when you pass it from one generation to the next, then if you tax that capital, then it's going to tear apart the business. You don't actually have liquid assets to pay the IRS. You have to actually liquidate portions of the company, the assets that are being used to generate the revenue to allow the jobs to be there and allow people to work, to allow the business to function. And so Trump made a very good argument, and I think the correct argument, that number one, these assets have already been taxed when the person earned the money to purchase the capital in the first place. They paid income tax on that money. And there shouldn't be a tax just because an individual dies and leaves it to their children or nephew or niece or whoever they want to leave it to. And it's going to hurt small business owners who have $10 million of capital invested in this small company. And if you think about company-wise, $10 million is very small as far as a company that's generating dozens of jobs. He didn't want to dismantle that company just because an individual died and, and unemploy these individuals, which makes up 50% of the American economy, which is small business owners. And so he wanted to allow the exemption to cover most Americans from having to pay a death tax. And I agree with that. Most Americans agree with that. You shouldn't have to pay a tax just because you pass away. And that's what the Trump estate tax exemption did. It doubled it from the Obama exemption of $5 million to $10 million, and then went back to 2010 and, and pegged it on inflation. So anything that uh, was inflation-wise um, applicable from 2010 would also count as um, part of that exemption. So right now, each person has a $13 million exemption because the inflation is $3 million since 2000, well, based off 30% since 2010. We've got to go to a break, but we're going to talk about when we come back, why you don't need to worry. You see it all over the news. Don't worry about it. We'll talk about why. We'll be right back. Coming up, more thought-provoking conversations on life, death, and the law right after this. Hey, you, my Dave Ramsey here. If you listen to our show or know anything about us, then you know I only recommend products and services I trust and I believe in. That's why when it comes to protecting your assets and planning for your loved one's future, you've got to call my friends Sean Garner and Adam Hansen at the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen. I encourage you to take the first step and attend a free, no-pressure seminar and learn all of your options. The firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen has been educating the Yuma community for over 40 years, and this is the only area of law that they practice. Sean and Adam believe in giving free education to help people make smart decisions about their assets and help them leave a legacy for their family that they can be proud of. Schedule a free personal consultation today. Call 783-4575 or visit YumaEstatePlanning.com. You're listening to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by Deason, Garner, and Hansen, the law firm that has been voted Yuma's best six years in a row. Welcome back to Life, Death, and the Law. We, um, we were talking before the break about the, the reason why you don't need to worry about the, all this tax stuff flying around, uh, this tax talk, shall we say, um, with it's trust. Fear, it's fear-mongering is what it is. And so uh, before the break, we talked about there's a few things that you need to understand 
to understand what's going on here, but we don't want you to worry about it because we have been getting calls nonstop in our office from our clients about, hey, I thought my trust was supposed to protect this, that, and the other. Yes, the trust that we created for families here in Yuma, most, I would say 99% of the trusts are what we call revocable trust. That Revocable, I just want you to think of the word revocable as changeable. That means that you can change it at any time. You can change who's in charge, who gets what, and everything that's going on in that. You can change that. It's revocable. What we're talking about or what the IRS ruling was about was irrevocable trust, which you can create during your lifetime, but very many, very few people do that because there's really no reason for it yeah. in most cases other than... It's, it's, it's not that we just don't do it because that's not what we do. It's because most Americans do not need it. 99.9% of Americans do not need an irrevocable trust. Now, all those uh, other estate planners out there that are peddling irrevocable trusts are going to get upset at me for saying that, but I really do believe that because I, I've drafted personally over 5,000 trusts, and I, and I see them working. This business has been around for 50 years, so I work on the administration end of a trust as well, and just as often as I do on the creation of a trust, Adam, you do as well. How many times are you seeing it that it was necessary, would have been more beneficial had a client had an irrevocable trust of the, you've drafted over 5,000 trusts as well. Yeah, no, it's going to be rare, very rare. The only reason you would do that is, so if, if revocable means changeable, what do you think irrevocable means? Irrevocable means unchangeable. And why do people do irrevocable trust? The reason why, the number one reason why people do irrevocable trust is because they want to get the assets out of their name before they pass away to avoid the death tax. Now, there was a very legitimate reason back in the 90s to do that because the, the exemption for the death tax, meaning the amount that you could pass on to the next generation or anybody else, was... In 1990, $600,000. And a lot of you have heard that number. That's the magic number that most of you hear out there. If I have an estate less than $600,000, I don't need an estate plan. No, you don't need, at that time, an estate tax plan. You do need an estate plan. You do need to figure out who is going to be in control of your assets when you become incapacitated or pass away. You do need to determine who will receive your assets. You just don't need to have additional tax planning if your estate was under $600,000 because that amount is exempt. But a lot of people, especially with inflation and, and the costs of things going up and the value of assets going up, started to have assets worth more than $600,000. So then an irrevocable trust would be, allow you to take the asset out of your name before you passed away. So it wouldn't count towards your estate because anything over that $600,000 mark got taxed and usually the tax on it was between 40 and 55%. So it was a huge tax on anything over $600,000. Now, Adam, just for our listeners, reiterate what the exemption amount is today for someone that passes away without any type of estate tax. So the level now, you can die with $12.92 million worth of stuff. So most people will be under that. If you're married, you get to double that. So it's 25.83, I think, eight, four, something like that, million. Um, and, and so a married couple, I mean, you got a lot of leeway there. So virtually everybody has no problem with estate tax when they pass away. 
getting back to this irrevocable and revocable thing. So irrevocable trusts are, I agree with you, Sean, in the sense that it, it gets the stuff out of your estate for estate tax purposes. However, there's also another reason why a person would do that, and that's creditor protection. But that creditor protection through case law over the years has only been proven to work in some cases um, with after five years of your stuff being into this irre- irrevocable trust. What that means is that if you put your, you create an irrevocable trust, once you do, and let me explain a little bit more for the listeners. I'm going to create an irrevocable trust. That means I cannot change it. Once I sign that document, I cannot change it. I can't change who's in charge and who gets what. It is done. And then I'm going to transfer my stuff, essentially give my stuff away, my house, my car, any of my assets that have title. I'm going to, I can title those into the name of this irrevocable trust that's unchangeable by me. And then I can't control it either because I've, I've, um, given away control to this trustee that can be anyone or anything, but I can't control it or else I lose my creditor protection. And the hope is that I do that five years before I have a creditor issue. I get sued or I go through bankruptcy or something like that. Now, different states, just to be clear on this, have different laws about when the creditor protection applies, but for Medicaid specifically, and that's what a lot of people are sold on as a Medicaid benefit of it, it's a five-year look back. In most cases, in most states, it's five years. And uh, I mean, yeah, you're right. There's a few states, Wyoming, Montana. These are states that really are great states for sticking it to creditors. And so they, they always look at, they're always looking for better ways to reduce that timeline of when that trust or that vehicle that you're using, that legal vehicle you're using is going to actually have credit protection. But on average, it's about five years. There's a five-year look back. What that means is that I create this irrevocable trust. I stick my stuff in it. I lose control of it. I can't control it. I benefit from it. So the trustee is going to allow me to benefit from the stuff in that trust, but I can't control it. I can't sell stuff. I have to go through my trustee. I can't uh, buy new things. I have to go through my trustee. So I lose control, but I benefit from it. And if I get sued within two or three years from doing this, it's still not going to protect that stuff that I put in that trust. So these are the types of trusts that we're talking about. They're irrevocable trusts during your lifetime. You lose control um, and and that gets the stuff out of your estate for estate tax purposes. So what is this revenue ruling about? It's only focused on these types of trusts, which are very few and far between. Very rarely do we create these trusts. And it's most likely that if you have a trust, you probably don't have this type of a trust because it's very high level and very um, uh, complicated. So let's just reiterate what works and what doesn't. If you come in and you do an estate plan and you have stocks and you have your home and you have a lot of assets that you have acquired over the time your lifetime and they've appreciated in value, when you pass away, if you do a revocable living trust, which is what we help people establish, then you will be able to direct who is going to be in control of consolidating the assets and who is going to receive those assets when you pass away. And a majority of time, depending on the asset, but a majority of the assets will receive a step up in basis, meaning when they sell those assets, whether it be stock that's appreciated or real estate like your home that's appreciated, they won't have to pay the difference between what you paid for the the property in the first place and the value at which they sell it for. They will get a step up, meaning it's as if they purchased the stock and the house at the time you passed away, and when they sold it, there was no gain. So there's not going to be any taxes on that. That's why 
planning in this way is very efficient in avoiding not only probate, but allowing for um, a strategy to avoid capital gain taxes. Many of our clients come into us and want to give their children stocks that they have purchased that they know they're no longer going to use. They don't need it for their retirement or a home that they have. And we advise them against that oftentimes because they'll lose that step up in basis, whereas if they give it to them in a trust, the child can benefit from it while they're alive, but they'll get a step up in basis after they pass away. And the child will get some asset protection because the child receives a trust that they didn't put their assets into. And when a child receives a trust or anybody receives a trust that they did not actually contribute their assets to, then it is an asset protected trust. So those are very good ways of allowing both um, the trust to be flexible and manageable, totally benefit you while you're alive and allow you to control it, and also allow your children to have flexibility over the assets when they pass away, but get the step up in basis and have also control as to how to manage and, and, and uh, benefit from their inheritance. So the only difference that the IRS ruling did was clarify that if you put any of your assets into an irrevocable trust, so it's no longer owned by you when you pass away, then it's not going to receive a step up in basis because you already gave it away. And the step up in basis is triggered upon your death for assets that you own. A trust for the IRS purposes, is looked at as yours. You own those assets in the trust, so you get the step up in basis as long as it is a revocable living trust, which is what we do. Yeah, day in, day out, that's what we do. And so if there's any questions or you have any more concerns about that, give us a call and come and see us. I mean, we'll do that for free, right, Sean? You're going to do that for free? Sit down with people and yes, so we've their got, stuff? we've got monitors in our office. I've got a 45-inch monitor in my office that we outline exactly who your family members are and who you want to have in charge and who you don't want to have in charge. You'll come in, you schedule an appointment, and uh, a lot of people are very nervous when they walk in for two reasons. One, they feel like they're going to be talked into a corner by slick-tongued attorneys that uh, are going to talk them into something that they don't really understand or don't want to do or aren't ready for. And number two, that the price is going to be a lot and they're going to get this bill in the mail for these attorney fees every time they have a question or depending on how long the consultation goes, we do consultations for free. We want to meet with anybody that has an interest in setting their affairs in order and showing them how they can outline their plan, how, how feasible this actually is and give them a step-by-step process to get this in order. And how do we do this and still pay our bills? Because when people see how easy it is and how affordable it is, we retain a lot of clients. We don't charge a dime until they sign on the dotted line exactly how much the end product is going to be. And we don't nickel and dime them. We don't assess additional charges after the fact. We go over what we're going to do and we, we quote them a flat fee. When they agree to that, that's when we begin. And um, I have more people crying because they're so relieved that uh, they have this burden lifted off their shoulders then because the bill is so high. So I think you need to learn more about these things that we're talking about. And the easiest way to do that is just go online to our website. You can go to yuma.law. That's it, yuma.law. And if you scroll down one or two little scrolls, you'll see a big banner there that says, watch now. It's a little video we've put together that will walk you through what the benefits are of doing planning through our office and how your plan might look. 
there's different options that we talk about in that video. And um, not every family is the same. Your, your particular family might require different planning than the, the average Joe. Now, what about people that are listening to this that live in California or live in New York? Because obviously we're nationwide, worldwide. I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if Ukrainians are listening. And, and um, so who does this apply to and who doesn't this apply to? This, would it be uh, beneficial for somebody in New York to watch this uh, video that you're talking about? We do planning for people all over the United States. And uh, it works anywhere. So it can be done under Arizona law which is one of the best states to use for this type of planning because of our advantageous laws here in Arizona when it comes to this stuff. And so many people come to us to put together their planning, and it can be used in Washington State, it can be used in New York, it can be used in Texas. The The planning that we put together works nationwide. And even if you don't do planning with this firm, you can watch that video and learn what, how, how it works. So if you do go to an attorney and... Texas or in New York or wherever you are, or even here in Yuma, you want to use a different attorney. You can still watch the video and learn the basics about how this plan works. You don't have to come to this firm. Of course, we'd love to have your business and and uh, we're the best attorneys out there. But uh, if you want to use somebody else, you're still going to get a benefit from watching this video. We got to go. This is Life, Death, and the Law. We'll talk to you next week. If you have questions or want to know more about something that was discussed today, please call the law firm of Deason, Garner & Hansen at 928-783-4575 or visit yumaestateplanning.com.